This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. As our conference program points out, uh, efforts to improve health in developing countries have traditionally taken a more or less supply-side orientation, driven by the interests of advanced countries uh, and pharmaceuticals and Western healthcare, healthcare uh, professional providers. Now, as these uh, folks are out there attempting to do good, and, and, and there's no doubt that they are attempting to do good, and uh, I think it's all too easy for panels like this to reflect on the various uh, backward and regressive reaction that some of these good efforts uh, engender. So as if all the problems are clearly on the side of people who are not grateful to be assisted out of their poverty and, and into better health and so on. So, I, but I think we ought to begin to acknowledge, and I'm sure some of the papers will acknowledge, that our own Western-oriented medicine and medical efforts are not culture-free. We bring an enormous amount of cultural baggage, and we are often go into countries to do things to them rather than for them. And so part of the, part of the problem that I think we need to address is the problem of how to re reorient our own cultural lenses to allow for the possibility that other cultures and other values may uh, may indeed be uh, worth uh, taking into account. The uh, uh, moderator for today's panel is uh, Grant Miller. He is an assistant professor of medicine, and he also has currently connections with the Center for Health Policy and, uh, and, and primary care research, and also the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's, a, I guess, an economist in the School of Medicine, is that right? And his current research focuses primarily on behavioral responses to disease and, and health interventions and the relationship of these kinds of reactions to global health policy. So thank you, Grant. Well, thanks very much for sticking around for the, the fourth and final panel today. So part of my job, uh, other than being quiet and letting our panelists talk, is uh, to introduce them to you. So we're, we're very lucky to have three terrific um, people here today with us. Uh, Lynn Hildeman from Civil and Environmental Engineering, David Katzenstein from Medicine and Infectious Diseases, and Aprajit Mahajan from the Economics Department. Um, so you just heard a little bit about what we're about today. Um, well, I should just tell you at the outset that generally in health circles, the way you can distinguish uh, physicians from non-clinical people is who's wearing a tie, and David sort of foiled us in this here today. Um, so <laughs> uh, they're all going to poke fun at me as we go, so I figure I can be preemptive and get that out of the way now. Um, so as, exactly as you just heard, the sort of basic premise behind this panel is the notion that if you look and what's really killing people and making people sick in poor countries today, one very striking thing that you'll notice right away is that these are things that we actually know how to do something about. So these are not untreatable infectious diseases. Of course, uh, cost and supply are big issues, and I think correctly so. This has been sort of the major area of, of efforts in international health over the past three decades or so. Um, as supply has improved considerably, uh, new challenges on the demand side have really emerged. In particular, why it is that when very simple uh, low technology devices with very large health benefits are introduced when it's explained <coughs> how they're used, what their benefits are, when they're made available to people in remote, uh, difficult to reach areas, why people still don't use them as much as their health benef benefits seem to warrant. So this is a very fundamental uh, challenge in global health uh, as money continues to be poured into 
improving supply, and yet um, these technologies are not being used as much as they might. So um, I'm a bit more into cheap thrills than some of our panelists here, so I thought I'd just show you a couple pictures that I think illustrate how, how these issues really cut across a whole wide variety of infectious diseases. So with malaria, for example, uh, insecticide-treated bed nets, uh, Aprajit will talk some about this. Uh, the case with dirty drinking water and diarrheal disease. Uh, there are highly efficacious point-of-use drinking water disinfectants, many of which are chlorine-based, some of which use ultraviolet radiation to kill bacteriological content. Uh, oral rehydration therapy as well for diarrheal disease. A simple combination of uh, a sugar, a salt, and some water can essentially uh, prevent any child with severe di uh, diarrhea from dying of dehydration. Uh, vegetable protein supplements for stunting and wasting. Uh, in many poor countries, you'll find uh, kiosks that sell snack packs, uh, fruit-flavored sodas. You find parents buying these uh, snacks and fruit-flavored sodas for their kids when side-by-side side are uh, vegetable protein supplements. Um, so you find malnourished children um, and, and their parents not taking advantage of these. Um, and something Lynn is going to talk a little bit about. Um, biomass combustion and uh, improved cook stoves. So uh, a large share of poor people in the world use uh, biomass fuels, dung, brush, uh, crop refuse for heating and cooking. Um, and this is a primary uh, source of uh, indoor air pollution, indoor air pollution in turn being a, a major, uh, perhaps a leading risk factor for acute respiratory infections, leading killer of children under five in the world. Um, okay, so uh, I think we'll start with Lynn. And we'll see if I can find her slides. I work in the environmental engineering field. And until about a year ago, I knew very little about developing countries. So I bring to you today a, a perspective, uh, the perspective of an engineer, um, learning about the, the challenges of bringing straightforward engineering technologies to developing countries. Um, I'm going to tell you today about um, a project Grant and I are working on involving looking at cookstove smoke in rural Bangladesh. And um, what I'm showing here in this slide is a picture of a woman co cooking in Bangladesh. Uh, the concerns in terms of inhalation of this smoke from cooking uh, not only applies to the women who are the cooks in the family, but also to their young children that tend to hover nearby while the cooking is going on. And so you can see in this slide um, a lot of smoke coming off from the uh, cooking area and the, this child hovering right nearby his mother during the cooking process. Uh, let me go over again what, what Grant mentioned briefly, which is why are we concerned about cook stove smoke uh, from a health standpoint. Uh, for children under five years old, about 20% of all deaths are due to acute respiratory infections. Um, and strong associations have been reported between indoor air pollutant levels and these respiratory infections. Um, an additional note is greater than 40% of the world's population relies on um, burning solid fuels, solid biomass for their cooking. Uh, focusing specifically on Bangladesh, the fuels of choice are fuels that do not cost anything to obtain. So branches from nearby areas, leaves, crop waste, and during the wet times of the year in certain parts of the country, cow dung on a stick 
is a very popular uh, fuel used for combustion. This here is a picture of one woman in southern Bangladesh's uh, stash of fuel she's going to burn. Um, you can see for the branches, they're very skinny branches. So we're talking about a, a highly inefficient combustion process. Um, and because it's an inefficient combustion of a solid fuel, there are very high emission rates of both carbon monoxide and airborne particulate matter, particles or smoke in the air. And so the interest was for the cook who tends to have to hover by the stove for the entire 60 to 90 minutes of the cooking operation, what kind of levels is she exposed to? And if you look carefully at this particular cook, you'll see that there's something unusual sitting around her waist. Um, and that is a portable, real-time particulate matter monitor. And so this particular cook was willing to wear on her waist this monitor to measure the levels of particulate matter she was exposed to during a traditional uh, daily cooking activity. And so you can see her, her squatting near the stove and cooking while this little monitor on her waist is measuring the particulate matter levels that she's being exposed to. And you can see as well in this picture off to the, uh, this is your left, um, what she's burning. There's a few pieces of fuel, but primarily what she's burning are leaves, dried leaves that she's gathered. And because of the fact that it's very difficult to keep a good fire going with just leaves, um, that forces her to have to spend pretty much the entire cooking period by the stove having to keep the, uh, the fire going. This is an example of what that particular cook you just saw was exposed to um, during the cooking operation. And so what is on the, uh, the y-axis are the levels of particulate matter to which she's exposed. Um, and I've marked here kind of two different averages. One is an average in, in the orange over um, the 30 minutes where the particulate matter levels were especially high and the, the pink averages over the entire cooking period. Uh, these levels are quite high um, and include a period of time when the cook was not near the stove in the kitchen area. How did she manage that? She had um, one of the younger women in her family group come and take over the cooking during that period of time. She was presumably in other parts of the, um, the one-room hut that they were living in during that time. So you can see that these smoke levels permeate to the entire hut. How does this compare with the U.S. 24-hour fine particle standard? Um, that standard is 65 micrograms per meter cubed. And so you can see literally 10 to 20-fold um, increases in concentrations over the uh, U.S. standard for particulate matter. Uh, you can think of this as the cook having been exposed to particulate matter is equivalent to if she had smoked, say, four or five or six cigarettes during this hour and a half period. And if you're not so worried about the cook, imagine the child hovering nearby was also exposed to those kinds of levels of particles. Um, before I went and visited Bangladesh, to me there were some very obvious, simple technological solutions or strategies for dealing with this level of cook stove exposure. Um, the thought is you either need to reduce the smoke levels in the indoor environment and or you need to reduce the cook's exposure time. For example, by having her not have to spend the entire period squatted down near the stove. And so ideas that immediately come to mind 
to me with my engineering hat on is, gee, if they would only add a stack to ventilate the smoke outdoors, that would greatly reduce smoke levels both in the kitchen and in the little one-room um, hut itself. Um, another strategy is to think about bringing in a more energy efficient fuel. Um, this could reduce emission levels per unit time and this could also again help with having the cook be able to walk away from the stove for part of the time instead of having to stay there the entire time. And then of course another idea is to introduce an improved or less polluting cook stove design one that will cook food more efficiently or combust the material more efficiently so that you're not generating the same levels of pollutants. Um, visiting there is a big dose of reality, at least for someone like me who hadn't visited a um, developing country before. Uh, one of the many regions we visited, um, these are statistics um, for the literacy rate. You'll notice it's a 17% literacy rate. Uh, realize that's almost entirely male. And so, in fact, if you, if you separated it by gender, the women would be down close at 0% and the men would be up at about a third of the population having some literacy. And the way in which this impacts things is in terms of their educational levels and their perceptions on what is um, healthy or not healthy or how important health is um, in their everyday life. Um, I was able to witness a, a group interview on cooking practices and perceptions with this particular group of women here. Uh, a whole series of questions were asked and this is what I learned from the cooks based on this, this group interview. Uh, what was valuable to them in coming up with a better cook stove design? What would they like as the most important features of this cook stove? Um, did they care about their personal health impacts? No. They look genuinely puzzled when asked about health effects, when pressed further for kind of, well, gee, don't you get a cough uh, from cooking all the time? The answer was somewhere along the lines of, oh, everybody gets a cough, no big deal. Um, were they worried about the health impacts on their children hovering nearby? No, they did not associate their children's respiratory problems with exposure to cook stove smoke. Um, instead, they were worried about their older boys who worked in the nearby brick factories, and they thought that might be a source of, of health impact. Were they interested in not having to hover the entire time by the cooking area? Uh, my impression was a tiny bit, maybe. It certainly wasn't high up on their priority list in terms of um, something that, that would make a cook stove more valuable. Instead, the most important thing to them for a cook stove was to not have to find or burn as much fuel per cooking event. And so it all comes back to costs involved in either gathering fuel or in purchasing fuel. So uh, what does this do to my, my great ideas for technological solutions? Um, it makes me conclude that adding a stack may not be viable, even though it would be very effective from a pollution <coughs> reduction standpoint. A problem with a stack is it increases the draw rate of air through the combustion unit. And so you're probably going to burn more fuel per unit time than without a stack. And to them, that would be perceived as a big drawback. Uh, another thing I learned from my visit there is that a stack being made out of metal is something that you can sell on a week when money gets short, sell it for scrap metal. And we, in fact, met a woman um, and that's where her, who had had a stack, and that's where her stack had ended up, that one week she was especially short of money and sold it as scrap metal. 
Um, considering an alternative fuel may not be viable as well if they have to purchase the fuel. And so we may indeed need to focus on the kinds of fuels readily available to them that are inexpensive. Uh, we met some, we went to some villages where they had used improved cook stoves. Um, there was, there seemed to be a trend of not continuing to use improved cook stoves over long period of, periods of time. Some of the rumors we heard for what the problems were with improved cook stoves was that first the combustion chamber was not good for burning crop refuse and leaves. It was too small. And so during the times of the year when that was their favorite fuel, they would go back to using their traditional cook stove. Uh, many improved cook stoves have a metal grate and it's difficult to obtain and replace that metal, gr metal grate if it gets damaged or lost. Uh, these cook stoves, because of the materials they're made out of, only last a few years uh, before breaking. And so there seemed to just not be a strong motivation to replace them with another improved cook stove. And of course, there's probably some other reasons that we don't yet know. Um, so where this project is that I'm involved in with um, Grant Miller as the principal investigator is we've um, completed but not yet analyzed a survey of villagers to find out for those of them that had improved cook stoves why they stopped using them. And we hope that will inform us in making a better choice on an improved cook stove. Um, and it of course has led to us revising our goals for what kind of improved cook stove to choose. Um, from the cook's standpoint, um, offering them a stove that needs less fuel per meal cooked is a very, very high priority. Um, and then from the standpoint of kind of further reducing their exposure to smoke, identifying a stove that um, allows the cook to spend some time doing things in other part of, parts of the house or outside away from the stove would also be helpful. And that's it for my presentation. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lynn. So next we have uh, David Katzenstein. Okay, well, I guess the, the work that I've been doing the last, uh, uh, I'd say, 10 years has been asking how we can sort of transform AIDS, HIV in Africa to begin to look like HIV and AIDS in Western Europe and the U.S. And this is sort of part of a, a large-scale movement of people who got inspired by the ethical issues of, gee, why are people in uh, developing countries dying of a disease that, in fact, uh, we have now learned to treat reasonably well. and treatment equals prevention, et cetera. So I, w I wanted to think in the context of some of Grant's questions about uh, the uptake of diagnostic testing <coughs> really in AIDS and TB. And these are twin pandemics, and I think that's one interesting way that uh, thinking has evolved, that in fact the, the large WHO building in Geneva had on the ninth floor the AIDS division on one side of the building and the TB division on the other, and it was only a few years ago that they began to realize that they actually ought to talk to each other. And in fact, uh, uh, there's some bureaucratic separation in the disease specificity that is really a problem. Although both diseases uh, are most profoundly impacting the poorest and most marginalized populations, certainly diagnosis, treatment, and prevention depend on public health and health service delivery. Although in the case we just heard about in terms of cook stoves, it is in fact people's personal and individual behavior. Um, 
the large-scale community resilience and national and international response to pandemic diseases is going to have to, in some measure, come through uh, public health programs and, and health service delivery. However, I think it is individual and family health-seeking behavior and community resilience as opposed to what the public health service, government, Ministry of Health provides that are the key interventions to begin to look at and think about. Um, so many of you have seen these many times, but just as a quick refresher, uh, HIV now claims more than 5 million people per year, and there are more than 40 million people living with HIV and AIDS, and the, it's really the, the southern cone of Africa the mo that's most severely affected. Um, some of the more pessimistic projections shown at the bottom of perhaps more than 100 million people because our transmission rates are getting way ahead of death rates so that, in fact, we're accruing more and more people with HIV um, even then we're losing despite the 5 million deaths per year. Um, TB, global TB has a similar distribution, although perhaps affecting many more people at this point in Asia. Um, but these are the incidents per 100,000 population, where in fact uh, now the incidence is 300 or more, which is very, very high in most of uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and this is sort of a beginning of that merging of programs that I think is, uh, is helpful to think a little bit about in which the, the, the TB uh, group, and this is a Global Partners Forum, is beginning to realize that TB-HIV is one of the keys to, in fact, uh, treatment of tuberculosis. Um, in fact, it's really impressive that in sub-Saharan Africa in particular, more than 50 percent of the active transmissible TB cases are now occurring amongst people who are HIV positive, that HIV is driving a new TB epidemic that's actually raising rates. Um, and that's shown here in which uh, there, there are certainly egregiously high rates of tuberculosis in those parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa where HIV is increased most, Cape Town being the, the striking example, which has the world's highest rate of tuberculosis, much of which is now, in fact, in HIV-infected people. Um, and I came across the fact that tuberculosis is also in elephants, um, but that's probably irrelevant. Uh, TB, though, has begun to manifest multiple drug resistance. And this has begun to sort of shock the uh, international community into awareness because now we're talking about a respiratory disease that is transmitted by immigrants and migrants where, in fact, many of the drugs that have been used successfully for many years uh, are starting to fail. So. Uh, it tends to focus the mind, particularly of the, uh, the wealthier countries, on, in fact, uh, concerns about drug-resistant TB. And just this last year, we now had the, the logical extension of this, which is so-called XDR-TB, or extremely drug-resistant TB, reported in a small outbreak in HIV-positive patients in South Africa. Um, and you can see, looking down on the slide here, that, in fact, this is an impressively bad disease that... Uh, 52 of 53 patients died within 25 days of diagnosis. So we are arriving at a super pathogen that is probably the product of partial treatment of people who have weakened immune systems with the standard drugs, and now we're selecting this extremely drug-resistant TB, which is uh, um, a concern for, in fact, I think, uh, the, the near and distant future. So. Um, this was, that led me to think about how do we respond to pandemics, to diagnosis, treatment, and prevention. And um, I just, I think I have uh, one of uh, Grant's questions quoted below, but uh, 
they traditionally have been supply-oriented, accessing uh, health technologies and infrastructure. Um, so what are the innovations that are needed? Well, I think it's certainly acceptable, reliable, and cheap point-of-care diagnostics, and I was going to talk a little bit about some of these that are in evolution. Um, and I think we have to revisit the concept of primary care, uh, which is actually now turning into health service delivery for chronic disease, which is very different than the, the format of primary care as it was developed in much of Africa and Asia through sort of the evolution of colonial health services to newly independent states which were trying to provide a level of primary care to a population. Suddenly they find a need for, whether it's in tuberculosis or more prominently HIV, actually delivering chronic disease care, which is a, an entirely different model. And then how do you mobilize communities to get involved in prevention treatment um, is really the key that I think we have yet to, uh, uh, yet to begin to look at. That um, Unfortunately, our model of, uh, of chronic care is what I term to be uh, Marcus Welby. For those of you who are old enough to remember this, this was the kindly old general practitioner in the town whom everyone came to see to unburden their troubles, and he was kind of like Rex Morgan, only older, I don't know, it was the notion of the solo practitioner primary care provider as somehow guiding you and your family through a disease process. In fact, if you're talking about 20 or 30 percent of the community having to take drugs for the rest of their life in the case of HIV or tens of thousands of people having to receive tuberculosis treatment, it ain't going to be Marcus Welby who will administer that. Um, there has been this very, very sharp increase in resources, and this is, again, part of the global response to the ethical conundrum of, uh, of people dying of a treatable disease uh, and drug companies um, being capable of producing large amounts of uh, pharmaceuticals to provide treatment. Um, but we're not doing very well. And this is a, a graph from the recent UN AIDS report which uh, uh, shows the percentage of those with AIDS who are in fact receiving antiretroviral treatment. So, and in general, in much of sub-Saharan Africa, other than South Africa, Botswana, the, and Namibia there, it's, uh, it's less than 10 percent. And by, as a percentage of those with AIDS, these are people who are, in fact, going to die within the next couple of years unless they get on treatment. So our, our capacity to mobilize large-scale treatment, while there are certainly admirable motives that can be attributed to PEPFAR and Global Fund and the many student organizations that have pushed for treatment of HIV, turns out we're, we're almost as bad at, uh, at providing large-scale antiretroviral treatment as we are at occupying uh, moderately-sized uh, uh, Middle Eastern oil kingdoms. Um, and the projections for TB, and this is from a mathematical modeling uh, exercise, but uh, the, the best-case and worst-case scenario, which modelers are now uh, love to show, Neither one of them is very good. The best case scenario is that we'll be down to a billion uh, uh, cases per year or, you know, people infected if things work out really well with dots. So again, some of our plans to, in fact, uh, uh, ameliorate um, um, uh, TB or HIV leave a lot to be desired in terms of their long-term outcome. And finally, just to, uh, this was an MSF slide, which probably those of you who are economists are very familiar with, but it's 17 percent of the world population that constitutes 70 percent of the market for pharmaceuticals and diagnostics, and uh, more than 90 percent of the profit actually derives from the U.S. Uh, uh, and to a lesser extent Europe, so that we have this intrinsic bias uh, amongst people who are looking at the economic distribution of innovation in that uh, 
the money is to be made clearly in another Viagra, uh, not necessarily in the treatment for malaria or TB. Um, so the, the questions that, uh, that, that Grant had, had listed, I sort of thought I'd talk just a little bit about the last one, uh, the behavioral foundations of health technology <coughs> and adoption uh, by giving you an example. And this is kind of contrasting the early 19th century with, uh, with the early 21st century in, uh, in terms of public health community campaigns. And can we learn to be culturally consistent? So as you look at the New York City Health Department's uh, campaign uh, against syphilis, which was every bit as common, in fact, uh, probably more so than HIV was in, in turn of the century in New York, they, uh, they show very clearly that Reporting to the health department, the laboratory clinics, follow-up, and education are all key elements in, uh, in syphilis prevention. Um, I think we've gotten much more modern now in which we have, you know, SpongeBob being ironic, et cetera, but trying to, this is from a group in San Francisco called thehealthypenis.org. So they know how to address their, their uh, constituency in, in probably a better way than these neo-Victorians who instructed everyone to wash their hands continuously and didn't actually talk about sex in the... Uh, in the duties of the health department and syphilis control. You'll notice nowhere in there is, the, is, is uh, sexual behavior or, or condoms mentioned. Um, so I was gonna talk about HIV testing and counseling in which there's really been extraordinarily slow and hesitant adoption. Um, the licensed diagnostics, the uh, ELISA and Western Blot were actually originated in 1985. Uh, um, and if we look at why was, did it take so long for HIV testing to become, in fact, uh, widespread and available, well, certainly confidentiality and the concept of confidentiality, which was immediately seized on by large parts of the constituency, particularly gay men in the United States who were scared to death of being outed through a medical test, as well as uh, legal issues in which every state in the union passed a different set of rules and laws to guarantee either confidentiality, mandatory testing in some cases, prohibiting testing in other cases, so that in the U.S. at least, you certainly had a checkerboard of approaches to HIV testing. Um, the, the whole Tereskoff duty to warn, i.e., if you know someone is HIV positive, do you have, as a physician or a counselor, the right to tell their spouse that this person could infect you with a fatal disease? And that, that becomes a or, in fact, must you hold confidential the private uh, medical information for the individual? And that, that uh, paralyzed, I would say, large numbers of public health efforts, which we're only slowly working our way out of. Um, there certainly were cultural implications, financial in terms of pensions, insurance, uh, and disclosure. So we brought all of this baggage of confidentiality and its encumbering regulatory structure to Africa. Uh, with us when we decided in the, uh, in the early to mid-90s that, gee, we ought to look at HIV in Africa and, in fact, begin uh, providing voluntary counseling and testing. So all of these things are tied to VCT models, and I think, though, that they're changing in this country with uh, rapid point-of-care testing, although uh, I don't think the same can be said in Africa. So we now have emerged uh, after a few years of, of hesitation into uh, rapid testing in 20 minutes, no needles, no blood, and there are a proliferation of both oral and blood spot finger prick kind of tests that have, uh, are really beginning to see the light of day. Um, this is much too complex an algorithm to look at, but this is what we've been subjecting thousands, if not tens of thousands, millions of people to, a, uh, 
an algorithm for testing that involved first uh, counseling, then doing a test, then uh, uh, getting the results, then coming back for your post-test results, where you then decided whether a confirmatory test would be done, at which point the confirmatory test is done. If you do this in Africa, which I did for a number of years, and you include all the complex issues of does your spouse, in fact, have to consent to your being tested because you represent a surrogate for his or her serology in some sense, it gets immensely complex and, in fact, very difficult to execute. So point-of-care testing with uh, some of these new rapid tests, it's a one-shot deal in which an individual can be counseled, tested, and given the result within a half an hour. So it really does open up the possibility of, uh, of much more um, fertile use of uh, VCT. Um, and in the U.S., this has translated into a real public health campaign um, in which the CDC has just last year announced that or at least announced to physicians and to public health people, okay, just test everybody. I mean, not against their will, certainly, and they have to be give some form of consent, but this whole sort of enormous cascade of counseling has given way to the realization that the public health benefits and the individual health benefits far outweigh the protections that were sort of imposed at the onset of HIV. And this has resulted, and I was surprised to find this, I was cruising around, but these are the CDC's estimate of the percentage of people in the United States in various age categories who have now been tested for HIV. And this is pretty phenomenal to have uh, two-thirds of, uh, of uh, 25 to 34-year-old women tested, half of men that age, which is uh, pretty spectacular. And I guess I, I put up all of these different uh, things that I found on the web about sort of different state and county uh, city health departments, how they're approaching this as a as a PR campaign, um, and I, th I thought it was, you know, sort of clever use of cultural symbols and a not particularly judgmental approach. Um, this has been particularly effective in that actually more than half of, uh, of the people tested were black, and there is, in fact, a, an increasing incidence and prevalence of HIV infection, particularly among black women, so they're an important group to reach. Um, and then, again, more of the, the student approaches uh, uh, from California and Shasta, uh, different, different programs. Um, there's been a cost-effectiveness model which says, yeah, it's really better to, uh, uh, to test everybody. And in fact, people are now beginning to experiment in the U.S. with nurse-based testing and counseling. And I don't know how much longer I ought to go. I, um, when I, if you look at, at South Africa, uh, many of my colleagues, in fact, are very much involved in ALP, the AIDS Law Project, and um, it's very clear that the levels of stigma and the levels of anxiety and denial in South Africa and Southern Africa are so much higher that, uh, that in fact, here you see a very, very long set of considerations, findings, and recommendations around confidentiality uh, and a huge amount of concern um, about HIV results, whereas, you know, the U.S. government-supported efforts are beginning to, uh, I think, bear some fruit in that there have been some AIDS testing days. We're starting to see the very slow rollout of HIV testing in parts of Africa, some community-based testing care and support centers. Uh, this is SIC, which are, who are the Students for International Change, actually a Stanford-based group that's been working in Tanzania. I was very pleased to find some uh, the pictures on the web of their, they're using a generic uh, rapid HIV test and, in fact, doing education near Arusha. Um, 
But I think this, this famous, well, it's famous in my world at least, statement that 95% of HIV people in Africa don't know their status and have not been tested still holds true that these efforts are puny compared to the, the extent of the problem. And why is that? Well, in, in high prevalence settings, what are those barriers to HIV testing? And I think um, uh, this is something that, that Grant and Jeremy Weinstein and I are, are thinking about with Seema Bhattacharya uh, in Zimbabwe. But I don't think anyone really has a good handle on all the different reasons. Is it information about prevention and treatment? Is it the support for HIV positive people, that is access to, to, to treatment? Um, is it community stigma, which I think is still very much alive in the denial levels? Um, and in India, they're huge as well. So we have both Asia and Africa feeding into the denial problem. Um, and, and is it cost? Is it access? Um, and how do you provide accessible services to those populations at risk now that you have fairly low cost, low impact means, i.e., how can we begin to see some of the kind of uh, uh, testing results which were seeing rapidly scaled up in the U.S. actually take place in the place where they're actually needed the most in the sense that many of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa have 10 to 20 percent uh, prevalence rates among young adults. So will these rapid test formats with opt-out and screening programs change this is, is I think the question that we'll see unfolding uh, in the next, uh, really next few years, which is going to be too late for many people, but uh, at least I think is moving in the right direction. And I was going to go on to talk about CD4 counts, but I think we're probably, I think that's probably enough to digest and discuss. So uh, um, I'll stop there and you can. Wonderful. Thank you very much, David. And our third panelist is uh, Aprajit Mahajan. So I'm going to be relatively low-tech, uh, so there's no PowerPoint presentations. Um, so today I essentially wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, an interdisciplinary project that I've been working on uh, with faculty from the medical school that's trying to get at some of the reasons underlying the low adoption rates of uh, insecticide-treated nets in uh, a malaria-endemic region of India. And I want to sort of use that project as well as some other evidence um, from other parts of India and elsewhere uh, which basically are part of what I think of as sort of a relatively new research agenda in development economics that sort of concerns itself with precisely these issues of why it is that um, relatively low-cost health interventions tend to be adopted uh, at such low rates uh, by precisely the most vulnerable populations that, that at least from the outside you'd expect to, to have high adoption rates. Um, and then finally, I, I hope to finish up by talking a little bit uh, about the sort of methodologies that uh, I think will be useful going forward in, in in, from the point of view of academics uh, across disciplines and trying to address these sorts of issues. Um, in particular, I hope to talk a little bit about uh, the use of experimentation in these kinds of contexts, um, and also to some extent uh, the incompatibilities, I think, between sort of uh, uh, academic incentives within fields that in some sense, I think, militate against uh, interdisciplinary research, at least along, uh, at least for junior faculty. Um, but that's sort of towards the end. So, so the larger question that sort of motivated uh, this project that I'm, that I'm working on uh, is why is IT in adoption so low in this part of India, which is Orissa, which is a, uh, a state in East India? 
Um, there seem to be, at least at this point, three or four large randomized trials on the basis of which uh, we've seen fairly dramatic reductions in malaria morbidity, uh, particularly for vulnerable populations, so usually defined as uh, pregnant women or uh, children under five. Um, ITNs are also relatively cheap, relatively uh, straightforward to use, uh, and these considerations essentially that led uh, to the setting of a set of what now have been seen to be relatively ambitious targets um, called the Abuja targets um, for ITN adoption by governments worldwide, and it's now clear that uh, most countries, and India certainly, is nowhere close to meeting um, any of these targets. In fact, in India, uh, most of the data don't even exist, and some of the data that we've been able to collect suggests that less than 10% of the population is actually using ITNs. Um, so why is it that ITNs are used in such low numbers in India um, and, and elsewhere? Uh, there have been a bunch of hypotheses that have, sort of, that have been proposed, um, and mostly in the public health literature, and I'll sort of summarize them as belonging to sort of three distinct categories, um, and uh, distinction between them is important. They, they sort of have important public policy implications, and at this point we actually don't really know very much about uh, which of them uh, is probably the most relevant. So the, so the most obvious uh, explanation is that it's largely an informational problem. Uh, so, the, so the idea is that target populations aren't uh, sufficiently informed about the benefits of ITN usage, and this results in relatively low um, ITN usage. Um, now, this is clearly something that governments are aware of. Most governments, certainly the state government of Orissa, has periodically launched various large-scale uh, public health informational campaigns across uh, different parts of uh, Orissa, and, and, you know, usually on a, on a fairly regular basis. Um, the effectiveness of these programs has never really been studied, uh, at least to the extent that it's reflected in our data and ITN usage, it seems to have been remarkably ineffective. Um, and, you know, just... So th this gets us, I think, to the central issue of exactly how, how do we convey the right kinds of information. So, for example, the nonprofit with which we're working with, several of the senior staff in the, uh, in the nonprofit actually believe that you could get malaria not just by being bitten by mosquitoes, but, but also by drinking dirty water. And we're talking about a population that has had high school education. So these are, you know, relatively, at least in terms of the Oriya population, they're probably in the top 10% in terms of uh, the level of educations they've had. Um, and so, this, so if you were to think of any, any subsection of the population that should have been affected by <coughs> a general set of information campaigns, you would imagine that the staff at this nonprofit would probably have been affected by it. So this is just to point out that uh, one of the things governments are really bad at, and I think uh, nonprofits might be somewhat better, but I, I'm not sure if that's the case, is really transmitting information in the right way, or transmitting information in a way that actually um, is something that, that, uh, that persuades people to take action, or that actually is, persuades people to drop prior beliefs, which I think uh, didn't happen clearly in this case. So that's clearly one set of issues that I think we don't have uh, a good handle on. So part of the, so, so as a first step, part of the, what we're trying to do in this project is to actually collect uh, to whatever extent we can, you know, given the limitations of survey data as opposed to sort of an anthropological approach, uh, just collecting the kinds of information that people have about malaria um, in, our, in the target population. And I think this is an issue uh, in which interdisciplinary knowledge is, is key. I think it's not just economists and medical doctors who need to be involved. I think it's also clear we need anthropologists or we need other sets of people to be involved in thinking about these issues. Um, but it's also clear that I think that uh, sort of within disciplines, that it doesn't seem to me that there are large incentives for junior faculty or for faculty in general to undertake these activities that, uh, while might have a high payoff in terms of sort of what we learn about the world, about the world actually have perhaps have relatively lower payoffs in terms of, you know, 
what's going to be uh, successful in the profession. So, you know, effective for a for an interdisciplinary project to be successful, uh, each part of that project, each member of that project, essentially has to have um, within his own or her own discipline um, a paper that can get into a top journal. And I think that. Uh, the nature of some of these interdisciplinary projects is such that the overall impact is certainly huge, certainly from a policy perspective. Uh, but you know, if the immediate question is, you know, will this get me a publication in a top five journal? It's not clear to me that you can get people from anthropology, medicine, and economics uh, to agree to study the same question and come up with the, you know, with the answer yes to all of the uh, for all three disciplines. And certainly, I think information is is one of these issues where I think we clearly need an answer. We don't really know how to get the answer. Um, and it's not clear to me, uh, you know, what, what the next step is that will help us to progress. But it seems clear that there's some sort of interdisciplinary uh, approach is sort of required. Um, so the next, the next set of issues that people have talked about to IT and usage is this issue about sort of cost and logistical difficulties. And this is sort of, in some sense, another obvious uh, reason, which is, you know, even though ITNs are relatively cheap by developed country standards, they are substantially expensive by developing country standards. So in ERISA, for example, um, and ITN is about the same as roughly a week's agricultural wages. So these are, these are not small sums of money, um, especially for people who are living in you know, the World Bank uh, description of people living on a, do on a dollar a day. Um, and so therefore, one of sort of the biggest campaigns recently has been to provide uh, ITNs for free. Uh, so this has been sort of a big campaign worldwide. And the idea has been essentially to provide as many, uh, to provide state governments, or at least uh, governments with as many resources to, uh, to provide ITNs for free. Uh, so it's been about 10 years, I think, since uh, some of these projects have taken off. And it's clear, uh, at least in, in, in India, and specifically in the state where we have some data on, uh, that we're nowhere close to being, um, uh, to being anywhere close to, uh, to getting universal coverage. We don't even have 10% coverage uh, for most of the relevant populations. Uh, so in, in this sort of situation where it's clear that the state is unable, and if you speak to public health officials, uh, one thing you realize very quickly is that they're incredibly strapped for cash. Uh, most of the funding for ITNs that's going on in ERISA is funding that's come from donors. Uh, this funding tends to be erratic. It tends to be driven by donor considerations. So programs start up and stop again. Um, there isn't a real sense of, uh, from the donors of how these nets are to be provided. While the randomized trials are really effective at telling us you know, what malaria reduction you should see if you essentially give every person in every household, in every village, a mosquito net. Uh, they basically tell us nothing about what kinds of malaria reductions you should expect to see under the kinds of programs that state governments actually implement, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe 9% of the population get nets. And to the extent that there are large externalities in malaria reduction, we really have no understanding uh, or no sense, at least from the, from the public health officials' perspective, or what kind of reductions they should expect to see with the kind of coverage they have given the kind of budgets they have. Uh, again, this is something that I think would be incredibly interesting to look at um, you know, from the research point of view and, and using some sort of interdisciplinary project. But again, it's not clear to me uh, if the incentives are the same. So it seems to me that uh, as far as the medicine and the science is concerned, the focus there in those randomized trials was to demonstrate that ITNs work. Uh, and it was demonstrated essentially by using universal coverage amongst the treatment population. Uh, the, the question of what reduction you should actually expect to see in practice given uh, given straightened government budgets is sort of an open one, and I think uh, uh, part of the difficulty of ever being able to tell whether the World Bank-sponsored projects or the Global Fund projects are actually ever having any impact uh, is the fact that we don't really know what kind of impacts we should even expect, uh, and also the lack of any kind of, at least in the Indian context, any kind of evaluation procedure um, put in place. So the Global Fund has distributed money in India. They seem to have no sense of how actually to do that evaluation. Um, they are content to go with government figures 
largely, I think, for political reasons, uh, but I think that's an incredibly um, uh, difficult way of doing things. It's also, it's, it's also a way in which we, we're basically never going to be able to tell how effective these, uh, you know, these injections of money have been. Um, and certainly, you know, the question of trying to continue to raise them when you can't really show what they've done is going to be something that I guess we're going to have to deal with at some point. Um, so anyway, to the extent that free nets, or to, to the extent that free nets such as provided by the state basically haven't worked, or we basically don't have as many of them as we'd like, um, there's clearly been a movement to try and use sort of non-state methods to provide insecticide-treated nets, and usually this has taken the position of, uh, this has taken the form of uh, some kind of social marketing programs where some element of cost recovery is, is introduced. Uh, these typically have had uh, fairly low levels of success to the extent that I've been able to find out. Uh, again, these are not things that have been studied in, in, uh, in any manner that would be convincing uh, across time and context. So I think one of the other issues with uh, studying these kinds of diseases and using uh, uh, is that most of these experiments are done in one part of the world, and then uh, we sort of try to generalize from what we learn from you know, a study in, in Tanzania to what we might be able to learn about uh, malaria in West Bengal or Orissa. Uh, and to the extent that the study design is purely observational, I think we can actually learn relatively little across um, across these social across these contexts. Even with a sort of a, a standard randomized experimental design, there are still issues of to what extent you, these have external validity. But I think um, at least the question of internal validity is is, is somewhat easier to answer. Um, so the project that we're trying to work with is trying to sort of take uh, uh, is trying to address this issue by sort of trying to use microcredit to provide ITNs to vulnerable populations. So the idea is. Uh, it's relatively straightforward, really. The idea is that if what prevents households from purchasing nets is not an informational problem, but largely a financial problem, uh, cash constraints of some sort, uh, then to the extent that you can make credit available to households should be something that might increase ITN usage. Uh, okay, now this sounds simple. It's a little bit more complicated because I think uh, the, the other set of issues that have to do with cost is really logistical difficulties. And it's, you know, fairly difficult to get nets to to you know, remote, not just even remote villages, but villages in Orissa in general. Uh, so one of the other things that, that we hope to study with this project is to actually see if we can use um, microcredit NGOs, or NGOs in general would tend to have um, you know, fairly, well, by no means representative, but a much wider network of distribution in place, and to see whether you can actually use the distribution networks that the, that the nonprofits themselves have to try and distribute nets. Um, this is something, again, that I think uh, sort of has been tried in different places. Uh, we don't really know to what extent it's going to work. Uh, the other thing that's key here, of course, is trying to, trying to get, trying to get nonprofits to also agree with, uh, you know, your own incentives or your own motivations for distributing nets, and it's, it's unclear whether nonprofits in general are willing to extend their remit to cover not just microfinance, uh, but also these kinds of health interventions. I think, I think the one danger that, that's happening now in India, and I think elsewhere too, is for <coughs> governments to latch on to nonprofits as sort of uh, the way to do everything, you know. So, you know, we can't provide nets. Let's use nonprofits to provide nets. We can't, uh, you know, we can't provide X. Let's use an NGO to provide X. And I think that's sort of uh, putting a lot of pressure on on nonprofits. And it also, in some sense, is an abdication of state responsibility. But uh, I think that at least to the extent that that you're able to find nonprofits who are interested in working these kinds of issues, you can at least start doing something that can try to address these issues. Um, the third set of issues are are in some sense much more complicated because it's not. It's even harder to think about how you might solve these kinds of issues. Uh, and these really have to do with, I guess, in what in the academic literature tend to be called sort of 
uh, I guess they're all based around explanations about how people value the future relative to the present. And the, and, and the basic idea, and, and some of this, the basic idea is that, is that for people, especially people living in extremely risky environments, so poor people who, who, you know, who face incredibly difficult uh, sort of daily day-to-day -day existences, uh, they tend to weigh, the, 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 the uh, pressure to weigh sort of short-term losses and gains is much higher uh, than to weigh long-term losses or gains. Uh, and I think that this is sort of something that's really interesting, and it's, it's, and it's clearly true at some level. What to do about it is much harder to sort of say, but it seems clear that um, even, if, it's, even, if, even if people are aware of the information, even if people are aware that it's mosquitoes that cause malaria, uh, the fact that they have so many competing constraints on, the, on the, you know, the relatively small amounts of money they have to spend on the whole host of uh, risks that they face. So, you know, just in this conference you saw, you know, people are facing risks from, uh, from uh, from indoor pollution, from other kinds of infectious diseases, malaria being just one of these diseases, um, it's, it's really unclear how we expect decision-making to work in this context. And this is something that I think is really, really poorly understood. And, and I think we're beginning to start um, to some extent to address these issues, but we're really left with more puzzles than, than answers. So, uh, for example, so let me describe an, another intervention that was done in, in the Indian state of Rajasthan that sort of related to this issue. So this was, a, this was a, an intervention about immunizations. Um, now, in principle, immunizations are freely available from local health centers throughout India. In practice, uh, about half of all public health centers uh, have attendance problems. Uh, the public health centers we visited in Orissa, not, we visited about three or four of them. Not one had any vaccines available. So, so clearly, availability of these vaccines is a big issue, even if, um, uh, even if people have the right sorts of information. So this what this intervention con uh, consisted of was sort of trying to test this hypothesis. And so the idea, the, so these were, uh, uh, so, the, so the research group essentially held immunization camps in about 130 villages uh, where villages were informed, households were informed. Uh, this was again <coughs> done through an NGO. And so the NGO workers uh, went to their villages and informed clients and, uh, who were all village members that there were going to be these immunization camps that were going to be held um, and essentially were able to convince people that these camps were actually going to be held and they actually were going to actually have vaccines. This is because most people, um, you know, it was, so, it, so that itself is a big issue. Uh, now, so what was interesting was, so one thing that you noticed, we saw sort of 20, so as opposed to uh, coverage of about 4% in this district, or, you know, 4% of kids being having any kind of immunization uh, in this district, um, the, the, the take up rate for immunizations were about 20% in these 130 villages. So it clearly suggested that uh, availability had something to do with it. So the fact that you couldn't have uh, vaccines readily available had something to do with it. People, you know, m were probably not willing to put in the time and effort involved to walk five kilometers to a primary healthcare center to find out that it's closed, uh, and therefore would rather not vaccinate their children. Uh, what was more, so this was relatively straightforward. What I thought was more interesting was uh, the intervention where about for half the villages, uh, the households were informed that if they actually showed up at the camp to get their kids immunized, they would also receive, um, I think it was half a kilo of dal, so half a kilo of lentils. And so, that, so while that, that is an incentive, it's a relatively small incentive in terms of the, uh, let's say, the, the daily agricultural wage, for example. So it's, uh, it's about 10, 10%, I think, of the daily agricultural wage. Um, what was really surprising was that the take-up rate was about five times as high uh, in, the, in the treatment villages, so in the villages where the people were offered about half a kilo of dal to get their kids immunized. Uh, so these are things that I think are, uh, are incredibly interesting, incredibly important, because you've seen this huge behavioral response from a relatively small financial incentive. Uh, and, you know, we really, as economists, and certainly uh, I think as, uh, as 
uh, as most academics, we don't have a ready frame for thinking about these kinds of behaviors. Now, this is clearly uh, immunizations by, by most accounts is a hugely important um, uh, medical, uh, it's, it's hugely important. Most parents should, should want to get their kids immunized no matter what. Um, you know, so to what extent can we explain these huge uh, changes in behavior for relatively small uh, financial inducements or financial incentives, I think is an interesting issue. I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, the, the way in which we want to go forward is to provide financial incentives for people to, uh, to undertake these health activities. That's not necessarily the conclusion, but I, what I do want to suggest is that this just reflects uh, how we as, as economists, I think, have a very, very poor understanding uh, of what drives decision-making in such poor context, what, dis what drives decision-making uh, even for, in general in economic context, but also in particular for health-related context. And I think this is something that uh, certainly I think has been studied a lot in developed country context. I think you know, there's a lot of work in psychology, looking at how people form in different kinds of environments. There's, much little, there's very little work that actually tries to see how people living in extremely poor, extremely high-risk environments are taking these incredibly important decisions and, and the small kind of triggers that, uh, that, that might induce these large kinds of behavioral <coughs> changes. So one of the things that we're trying to do um, with this malaria project is also to try to, um, in, in some sense, try, try and distinguish between different kinds of explanations, trying to design certain kinds of contracts which might, um, which might, ask, which, which might enable us to, to answer some of these hypotheses. So if it's the case that people are discounting the future um, and they're aware that they're discounting the future too readily, uh, if you offer people contracts that essentially commit them towards a certain kind of behavior. So if you offer people contracts that, for example, commit them to getting their nets retreated over time, uh, do you actually see people a, opting for these kinds of contracts? So are people even aware that this, is, uh, that, that this is a behavioral pitfall that they face, or do you actually see very little difference in the kind of uptake that you get uh, from the nets offering these kinds of contracts? Uh, so I mean, I, just, I think I, what I'd like to point out is that it's just um, that certainly for you know, first order things like immunization, so if you forget about nets or, or even about uh, things like nets, we really have very, very limited understandings of how households make these decisions. And I think that um, it's clear that some kind of interdisciplinary approach is, requi is required to address these issues. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what would be the best way to go about doing it, but I think that uh, for a lot of what we've been talking about today, it seems that this is clearly uh, going to be at some level a, a key question that most you know, large-scale public health programs are going to, to face. So for example, uh, even about HIV testing, there's some recent work in Malawi that, that again showed you know, hu fairly large responses um, to relatively small financial incentives. So, so people were tested and then they were offered a small financial incentive if they, if they agreed uh, to come and pick up the results of their test. And you actually saw relatively large responses to the treatment group which, um, which received the incentive to pick up their HIV results. Again, this is something that within you know, a rational choice framework doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You could try to uh, argue it away by saying people have, you know, bad information sets or limited information sets, and that might be part of the explanation, but, uh, you know, until you know how to transmit information effectively, it's not very useful from the public policy point of view to know that people have bad information sets. So I think that, you know, there's, at least uh, to my mind, that there's, you know, there's far more questions than answers, um, but hopefully, um, you know, 10 years from now, we'll have at least some answers for some context. <coughs> Thanks. we have the, uh, the panelists come back up here. Um, while they're coming up here, before we open the floor for questions, let me just offer one quick anecdote. So um, 
in trying to start to wrap my mind around some of these issues, I've taken the opportunity as various uh, distinguished senior folks who work in international development circles uh, uh, who visited Stanford over the past year and a half um, have come and I've generally sort of posed to them these issues and asked them for their, their sort of knee-jerk re reaction to what the, root, uh, what the root issues might really be. Um, I've sort of generally tried to think about two broad sets of explanations that have potentially very, very different policy implications. Um, one that focuses very much on information. Um, so to the extent that uh, simple health technologies with very large health benefits aren't being used even when they're delivered to people's doorsteps uh, and they're being delivered for free, maybe people simply don't understand what they really do for you. Um, Certainly that would imply efforts to not just have uh, someone like me show up and try to explain to you that don't you see 10 leading Western medical journals demonstrate clearly that the benefits are enormous and it suggests that in fact perhaps trying to find appropriate context appropriate salient ways of delivering information is really an important place to invest uh, for improving uh, adoption of these health technologies. A very different set of explanations might be one that's very much rooted in we simply don't understand the decision-making calculus that individuals and households engage in. So in other words, uh, we may perceive these wonderful health benefits. Uh, we may perceive that they don't cost you anything in terms of traveling far or paying a lot of money. Um, but in fact, uh, there, are, there are many other costs embedded in a particular cultural setting uh, or in the use of a particular technology that, uh, that someone as an outsider doesn't perceive correctly. And so uh, what that implies is, in fact, these may not be the right technologies uh, for, for, for uh, development agencies to try to deliver uh, to a variety of communities to improve health because, in fact, they're not really making people better off where they to use them in the first place. So it, it implies a very different place for policy to focus in terms of trying to improve health in developing countries. So, um, so why don't we open up the floor for questions? Yeah. Elizabeth Petit-Cornell, I have a question for Professor Ketzenstein. What do you think is the role of the traditional healers in, uh, in Southern Africa, and how are you trying to work with them? Um, well, it's uh, actually w uh, a woman named uh, Nicola Natras. I don't know if you know her, at, at University of Cape Town, has uh, written or edited an anthology on the relationship of the Sangoma and sort of um, alternative medicine. And a number of my students have worked with traditional healers. I think the, the most important uh, uh, issue is, as I reviewed this um, a few years ago, there are four to 600 uh, uh, physicians who are licensed by the Health Professions Council to prescribe drugs in Zimbabwe. There are 40,000 traditional healers. So if you ask people, where do you go when you have a problem, the likelihood that they are going to say, I go to my you know, neighborhood clinic and I'm referred up the hierarchy, et cetera. Or, so I think there still is a great deal of use of those uh, uh, traditional healers. Um, well, we've worked with the Traditional Healers Association starting in the 80s in that uh, the, you know, ritual scarification is a part of this. So there was a, a big campaign in which they the leadership of the Traditional Healers Association announced that, in fact, scarification was going to be much more effective if you dip the razor blade in alcohol between clients. So I think working with them, I, I find, frankly, that most of them are an extremely secretive and paranoid lot. And they, they view, essentially, Western physicians or even <coughs> physicians, in Zimbabwean physicians or South African physicians, as trying to steal their secrets. They will never tell you exactly what their mixtures consist of 
and are sure that you, know, you are going to steal their secrets and make huge sums of money. And many of them are, frankly, the most egregious con men who are, in fact, promising cures and extracting large sums of money from patients. So we've seen the you know, sort of rise and fall of, of these. But the, the association and trying to work with them is, is it's fascinating academically. And I think there's some safety issues, like the razor blades and alcohol, that can be, uh, that can be, can be done. I don't, I don't think that, that I mean, every, every two or three months, I get a little packet of some funny herbs um, you know, with these treat the symptoms of AIDS. And I just know if you do this, that I'll, you and I will be rich, and we can start a company. And, but I can't tell you exactly what they are, because then I'd lose all my power. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, my name is Laurie Frankel. I'm from the School of Medicine as well in pediatrics. And I have a question for both Lynn and uh, Brigitte, and maybe you, David, uh, regarding the leapfrogging of technologies uh, into these emerging countries. And I know that, um, Lynn, you presented a very simple uh, um, solution to a very complex problem uh, with the home cooking environment. And I've been on a number of me NGO medical trips where we take care of burn victims. And one of the downstream effects of um, creating um, a system of public awareness for these um, families is the exposure that younger children have to potential for serious burns. And Aprajit, uh, uh, when you put net, netting around the bed and you leave, you, uh, you get a better cooking device and the mother can leave the cooking site and you have another toddler there, the, the mosquito net can catch on fire. And the child who's inside the bed can have serious burns. So I'm just wondering, how do you uh, introduce these new technologies that, that are for public safety but have some downstream effects that we that have other uh, major side effects, burns, uh, for example. Well, I mean, I think this comes back to the point of this conference, which is that the uh, cultural implications of, of great ideas, quote unquote, great ideas you might have in the in the comfort of your office are, are uh, very difficult to assess, and certainly. Uh, Nothing substitutes visiting the place and having people who are, are familiar with the culture um, be able to evaluate um, what are the impacts going to be of those particular technologies. Uh, specifically for Bangladesh, it, it's, they often build the, the, a little bit of a separate kitchen. And so it isn't actually adjacent to the sleeping area. And I think that's because Bangladesh is a very warm climate. And so they're not also relying on the stove for, for warmth at night, so I wouldn't worry about that specifically for Bangladesh, but I'm well aware that, that in some other parts of the world that's been a big deal. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you, as you were giving the presentation, you know, gee, aren't cheaper solar cells and rural electrification in some kind of way? Because certainly what we've all been hearing about global warming, the idea of a billion people all burning a pile of leaves every day in order to, to make their rice doesn't sound sustainable as that goes to two or three billion people even in terms of the carbon footprint that we're now also concerned about. So I, I, I guess I, I have the same sort of reaction as, gee, improving the cooking stove is critical, but that's kind of like two centuries ago technology. But I'm sorry, did, did, did someone, someone behind you uh, had Someone a, in the back that wanted yeah. to jump in on this, actually. It was a question to the last speaker, actually. I was fascinated by the fact that you were saying sort of irrational choices are made. and all the time, which of course I think most of us do realize. And uh, with some of, uh, just to ask as an example, when we run our studies with physicians, we offer an iPod. Every physician is able to afford an iPod. 
and yet we get many subjects when we offer one iPod randomly to be assigned. So irrational, like acquisitiveness, are these things that people are using for these studies? And secondly, what happens when they realize that you are, that they're making irrational choices and they realize, uh-uh, I'm not getting what I should be getting out of this. And uh, they back off. Right, so I, I guess I, um, so I wouldn't want to call it necessarily irrational behavior. I think it's irrational by, by within, within the constraints of you know, most, most of our ways of thinking. Uh, I, I think of it as, as behavior that, that we don't quite understand. And I think that um, certainly, when, certainly in the kind of interventions that, that people in development economics are doing nowadays, one of the things that they are trying to do is to use these relatively small incentives. I guess in the US, an iPod is a small incentive. Um, to look at the effects of that on behavior, you know, what are, what are the long-term effects of these incentives? You know, once once people factor it in, are they going to respond in the same way? Is something we don't under, something we don't know. I mean, presumably, uh, behavioral responses are incredibly complex. You'd imagine uh, that there would be these kinds of implications. Uh, in addition, uh, one of the things, one of the drawbacks of this literature is that most of these interventions are done. Uh, rel in relatively small areas because you're working with nonprofits that have relatively small uh, area that they cover. So you really don't know what the implications would be for a program if it were extended to the entire population. Although I, I had a quite similar question, which is what would happen if you took a whole bunch of uh, World Bank development economists and stuck them in a village without any money and looked at their decision-making process? Because <laughs> somehow the, the idea that uh, you know, future planning for the health of yourself and your children, which we're all obsessed with, that that would translate directly. So the, 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 the lentils make perfect sense to me. I mean, if you can, but I think what, you, what you can do as an economist that strikes me as very interesting is you can repeat this experiment and find out how many, is 50 grams, 100 grams, where's the break point in where, because Sure, you're, you know, why should you take your kids to another one of these, sorry, <laughs> why should you take your kids to another one of these exercises in, uh, in, you know, community health, which you don't see any tangible benefits from. I mean, the immunizations are nice and people jab them, but if you know you're going to get, uh, you know, a, a half kilo of lentils, sorry, they seem very persistent. Hello? <laughs> I think we should probably move. Why don't we come over here? Can't figure out how to shut it off. That's yeah, for uh, <clears throat> for both, uh, well, for all of you, but especially for Opposite and uh, David. Uh, uh, in your comments, Opposite, you were talking about sort of delivery mechanisms. You said, well, we could ask the public health sector to do it, or maybe there's a, there's now more and more tendencies to to call on nonprofits because they have networks established and so on. And then I thought you were going to go on down, and and, you, and then you instantly went clear to the bottom and said, or oh, you could offer incentives to patients. And I was wondering about the intermediate level. You, know, you skipped over the local, so the local social structure, the, the, the community patterns that are in place there, and, and particularly in, in the case of, of HIV, David, I wonder, have you looked at or, uh, there, you know, one of, the, one of the distinguishing features of that disease in this country was the gay-lesbian community and the distinctive organization uh, and, and, you know, that community mobilized itself in, in very interesting and important and powerful ways to take on this problem. And I wonder if, if do, such, do similar communities exist in, in Africa that could be in some ways mobilized or accessed? Well, there, there, is, there is something called the uh, AIDS <laughs> Self-Empowerment Treatment Initiative, AIDS SETI, which are 
19,000 uh, people in, I think, 19 or more than 100,000 people in 19 different organizations who are people living with HIV. And there is, it's an association-based model in which there are associations of people living with AIDS. Uh, this was actually started and stimulated by Hans Binswanger, who is a World Bank economist who was very concerned and wrote some science articles about how to provide HIV treatment for millions, in which he said we ought to be empowering, in fact, the people with AIDS themselves at the level of the community. Um, the problem is that the people they have to fight with are generally the government and the Ministry of Health and all the NGOs who, of course, all want to take control of facilitating this process and absorb all the resources. So it's a tremendously radical notion to say, oh, it's the people who actually have the disease who have the problem, and so therefore we should be providing funding directly to them. So far, there are precious few models of that because, in fact, the Ministry of Health stands up and says, but of course, we are responsibility pour le son de la nation, or whatever country it is, and therefore we need to, uh, uh, we need to have all the money, please, to run our clinics, and then the patients can come along. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating problem. Eventually, I think they will organize, but there have been very few homologues to uh, the gay men's health crisis or ACT UP or uh, TAC, the Treatment Action uh, coalition in South Africa is probably the only highly politicized organization that really has large numbers of, you know, sort of literate, articulate, and angry people who are demanding treatment. And they're very much more like the activist groups in the U.S. Uh, Tasso is in Uganda is the iconic community group, but they're more a support group and less uh, pressurizing the government in the same way that one would see activists in the U.S. having done, or in fact, TAC in South Africa doing. So there was a, I think there was a lot of enthusiasm, in fact, on the part of the gay community, particularly in the Bay Area in New York, for let's go to Africa and teach these people how to demand treatment from their government. Um, I can tell you in Zimbabwe, there were you know, a bunch of women uh, uh, appearing in front of parliament demanding the government do something about AIDS would probably be rounded up and uh, beaten up and driven off into the bush someplace. Um, without anyone having the slightest hesitation. So there doesn't tend to be that, that wedge that you can use uh, um, of, a, of an empowered community to push government in the same way that there was in, in the US. I, mean, I think um, in the Indian context, the, so I think ultimately this is boils down to a question of politics. Uh, so in the sense that the government of India has, had, has a decentralization bill that was passed in 1993 that in fact was meant to empower village level councils, which are meant to be these repositories of local community that are meant to be in charge of education and health spending uh, that are presumably at some point then going to be able to decide how to spend that money. Now in practice, like David pointed out, the sort of entrenched state bureaucracies are, are doing their best to essentially ensure that these, that these bodies have access to very little funding. So the, the people who actually belong, so the heads of these village councils, uh, maybe 20 years from now, they will be politically powerful enough to control some funds. At this point, within the political structure, they're still too weak to actually have access to, for example, you know, appoint uh, or, or dismiss nurses from the primary health care center or, or teachers from their schools. Um, I, think, uh, I think the intent of the Panchayati Raj Act was to empower these local communities um, to the extent that these local communities are not politically empowered. I think it's, uh, it's not going to happen. Hi, um, my name is Benita and I'm a uh, just an engineering master's student, but I'm extremely interested in international health. Um, I have one question for Lynn and one uh, question for uh, David. Um, to Lynn, I guess, 
this is maybe a naive question, but like, if I was wondering if you guys are looking at more energy efficient or energy absorbable um, cookware, or even uh, recipes that would take uh, a lot a shorter time to cook, like uh, the traditional foods, um, since they're clearly interested in reducing cook time. And then also, um, to uh, Dr. Kensentine is, um, I, I guess I'm a little unclear as to your strategy about uh, TB and HIV. Are you trying to attack? TB through um, looking at HIVs uh, uh, patients or the other way around or maybe just like pandemics in general? In, in Go for the cookware first. <laughs> uh, the, the parts of Bangladesh that, that we've been considering for this study are, are very, very, very poor. And so uh, we've been trying to be somewhat realistic about kind of the uh, you get a balance between are you going to spend a lot of money on a few people and bring them a much better technology, or are you going to try to identify a technology that you hope will, will spread, that, that people will see and have the capability to be able to adopt. And so I, like you, I was tempted originally with, oh, you know, let's bring in something really high-tech, fancy fuels, fancy stoves and all that. But I've come around to the view that, that really coming up with something that people will keep and be able to keep and continue to use for years is probably going to have a longer term impact on their health than something that will last for maybe six months and then break or, or be set aside. I, I guess the easiest way to encompass the TB, AIDS, and malaria, and maybe flu, and maybe other things is the, is the notion that we have to begin to think about uh, uh, community resilience as a phenomena that has to be plastic in its response to, uh, to disease threats, because we don't know in 10 or 20 years. I mean, the, my history of involvement with infectious disease is that there have been uh, half a dozen things that we didn't know about when I started medical school that, have, that are now affecting hundreds of millions of people, for example. So that, that makes it, um, so as you think about development, disease, and technology, um, how you incorporate the natural resilience communication and the, the sort of ecology of, of communities is very important. The fact that we've set up very, very structured hierarchies, this is the TB control program, this is the AIDS control program, often doesn't allow the best communication and facilitation of, quote, overall development goals. They tend to be very narrowly focused. So somehow we have to begin to explore paradigms that actually include the concept of how the community functions as an organic whole. Um, that's where the different recipes, though, get really difficult. Because I was thinking, as you were presenting it, since all of these women grew up sitting next to their mother, who was cooking in one of these stoves, the notion that you're telling them, don't you realize this might be bad for your children, but this was their entire experience of growing up, they just see you as a sort of weird culture, or your translator who's doing this, as kind of a weird cultural anomaly. but. The notion that someone coming in one day and pointing out that uh, you know respiratory disease is related to smoke inhalation, and when in fact that's how generations of Bangladeshi women, I assume, have cooked and fed their families, it's it's hard to imagine how you could get any other answer. Well, I mean, but there's also a perception that that um, their priorities are being misunderstood. What are we doing coming in and talking with them about health? when they don't know where the few cents they need to buy the next set of wood for the next meal is going to come from. Where they're literally in some of these villages having to make a choice on which of their six or seven children gets to have seconds, because there's only enough for one of those six or seven children to have seconds. 
And so it's, uh, Grant is right in one respect. You think, oh my gosh, we need to teach them more about health effects. We need to teach them to understand that this is not good for their children. But uh, on the other hand, they're, they're having to focus so hard on just day-to-day <coughs> -day staying alive and keeping their children alive that in a way it's understandable that they're saying, you know, no, no, please, that's, that's not what we need money for to protect our health. We need a way to buy fuel. We need a way to build a schoolyard to educate our children. Uh, we need, you know, their priorities are very different from what you might want to drop in on their village and, and talk to them about. What a small incentive motivates them so much. Yes. Yes. So, so these views very much are consistent with uh, we don't properly understand the decision calculus. Um, that's not that's not sort of the uniform consensus view amongst experts that work in this field, though. Interestingly enough, I'll just I'll just point out. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hi, my name is Harman Pentul from the Health Center. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, very different. One is for David regarding some recent papers published in the infectious disease literature about circumcision preventing uh, transmission of HIV and uh, I mean most of these studies came out of Africa so I'm just thinking that if you are to try and take this model and apply it in various other parts of the world I mean I, I got trained in India in medicine and I I find this extremely um, very difficult a very difficult model to implement in a country like India so how do you propose to do something like this? Uh, because th there are a lot of IT experts who are st stating that this may be one of the most effective models of preventing HIV that's come out. Well, you know, the, the preventionists out. have had a really rough time over the last 20 years right. um, in HIV. And so the idea of having a couple of randomized trials of circumcision, um, and actually you misspoke only a tiny bit in that the, what's What's actually been demonstrated is circumcision reduces the risk of acquisition of HIV. So this might, in fact, be good for a generation of um, a men who are now 15, 16, 17, 18, who by providing circumcision, you can reduce their risk in the future. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't think there's any evidence yet that, it, that if you should become positive as a circumcised man, that then there's any lower risk of your transmitting it to a woman. So it, it's not that it reduces transmission, it's acquisition. So it would be 20 years from now before you would see any effect. That's not to say it shouldn't be advocated, done, evaluated. There are lots of cultural questions raised, but I think it's uh, actually the desperation of the HIV prevention field, which has uh, spent a great deal of money, done a large number of studies, and has very, very little to show for it, and now is suddenly so excited that they've got actually a, uh, a study in which there's a, well, it's a biologic intervention or behavioral intervention in which there is truly a biologic outcome within a year. Now, whether in fact that would hold up for more than a year is a valid question as well. Um, and since presumably you're now reducing the frequency of acquisition of HIV by young men by as much as 50%. But uh, unfortunately, HIV acquisition in hyperdemic countries is also kind of like compound interest. That, so your risk is reduced by, uh, by, ha by 50%. But whether that would encourage you to have twice as much sex um, is, is the obvious question, at which point you know, it zeroes out. 
So those are, those are some of the difficult issues that sure. come up. So my, my second question is, uh, you know, Grant mentioned this issue of educating people about the various health effects. And uh, you see this trend over the last 10, 15 years, more and more people in the United States getting to know about tobacco, the adverse effects of tobacco, adverse effects of fast food. Now, you see all this moving across to the developing world. Uh, you go to countries like China and India, every, every block has a McDonald's. Uh, tobacco is being sold outside schools, and you're, getting, you're not getting Indian brands. You're getting Marlboros and Philip Morris. And <coughs> so is there any point where you would, uh, you know, international health organizations stand up and say that policies need to be changed on a global scale rather than having states or local governments implementing policies and sta stating that uh, let's ban smoking in public places, uh, or should the WHO get up and say, okay, we cannot have companies sending these epidemics from one country to another, where they know that there will be a lag of about 20, 30 years of people catching up to that knowledge. Seems we don't have immediate answers to that. Let me just mention there is a group starting to coalesce here around issues of health and governance that would be um, tr that's trying to take on precisely some of these issues. Um, there, there's a question over here I wanted to come back to. I was going to try and see if anybody in the group would like to make a connection between the gender panel, which I know you weren't all able to attend this morning, and this panel, in particular with respect to HIV-AIDS. Um, I'm from South Africa and have many friends in South Africa involved in AIDS work uh, at the community level. And a major vector of transmission, not so much in South Africa, but in, in, in parts of Africa further north, is you know, truck drivers going from city to city, picking up HIV from prostitutes or other casual sex they have in other places, and then bringing it home to their families. And I wonder whether, from a community point of view, in any country um, where women are relatively unempowered in these interpersonal transactions with respect to men for cultural reasons, um, whether there's there have been efforts to introduce either information campaigns for female condoms or, or other kinds of campaigns to empower women to try and require their, their sexual partners to, to be tested for HIV AIDS. In other words, whether women are a way to fight this, it's pretty clear men have not been um, a successful target of, of intervention. Um, my favorite nurse who worked with me in the early 90s, uh, Carolyn Mapacheri, uh, when I was doing a, a factory worker prevention and education project, quit to become the head of a uh, uh, women's empowerment group in Africa. Uh, and she is successfully uh, traveling around promoting female condoms <coughs> and said that the only way to, to do anything serious about AIDS in Africa was, in fact, to empower women. Um, I think the fact that, you know, they, that the notion that as, an, as a 16 to 20-year-old young woman in much of southern Africa, your primary hope, aim, and goal in life is, uh, is to, get, to get a husband who will impregnate you and support you, and that your job opportunities. You are such a rare exception if you manage to finish school, go to the university uh, without getting pregnant. And in fact, your, your entire culture is telling you you're, the most important thing for you to do is to land a husband um, or have you know, the sugar daddy equivalent or someone who's going to take, and you know, for a young girl, there is no way to make money other than 
than transactional sex. Sell tomatoes by the side of the road is not going to get you a cell phone. So, yeah, we have a we have an incredibly patriarchal ec economic structure in much of Africa in which women have no power. The notion that that a 16, 17, 18 year old woman is going to tell the 30, 40, 50 year old guy who wants to have sex with her that he has to use a condom, or that she's going to get one of these unbelievably cumbersome female condoms, or a microbicide which she's going to know that she has to insert or use an hour before having sex, I think all of these are kind of preposterous. Um, it's the old men who are the problem. It's the old men who, in fact, occupy the positions of power in those societies. And if the Zuma trial didn't teach us anything, uh, it should tell us that you know the real problem in South Africa are, in fact, uh, the older men. They're the, they're the worst offenders, in my view. So I, I don't know if you can empower the young women to be able to resist their advances. And I don't know how you actually deal with those very powerful patriarchal men. I mean, that's, that's a tough thing. Can I add one very quick moment before yes. we conclude? So I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the issue of gender, because I, th I think it's, it's relevant in lots of other ways that we don't have time, unfortunately, to talk about today. <coughs> um, one, I think, is very clear, independently of the great example you brought up. Um, so uh, Carol Bellamy, when she was at UNICEF before Ann Veneman, um, was very controversial in placing uh, women's issues very high on the child welfare agenda. And the an important part of the rationale is that, um, well, in development circles, sort of the stylized you know, facts are you give money to men, they drink it and smoke it. You give money to women, they spend it on their kids and things that are good for the house. So the idea was that by um, trying, to, uh, trying to pursue improvements in women and women's bargaining power within the home, you would actually see large uh, increases in household demand for things that are good, for example, for kids and for health in particular. So certainly one place. In the case of rural Bangladesh, um, it's women who are really uh, around doing all of the cooking, uh, breathing all of the smoke all of the time, for example, and it's men who are uh, away during uh, periods of intensive indoor air pollution. And so you can imagine that um, men and women have very different preferences over these things. And in, and in uh, structures where men have all of the say-so in terms of how households spend their money, there's, there's thought that there's large scope for um, gender issues to, to lead to important health improvements. Uh, <clears throat> one of the, I want to be very unacademic un, un because uh, we're not going to be on academic standard time. We're actually going to end on time. We began on time. The, the panels have been on time. And so I think it's fair we, we call a formal conclusion to this with great thanks to Grant and the wonderful panel. We could go on for now. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.